This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our new research poll shows a quarter of British Columbians think the holidays will be more stressful than fun. What do you expect in the holiday season? Would you say mostly fun, mostly stressful, or other? Reply and tell us. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line on that one. 604-331-2899. Are you stressed out in the holidays? 604-331-2899. Uh, let's talk about the weather now. Just as everyone heads out the hot Christmas holidays, big winter storm is continuing to wall up a bunch of the province. At YVR, things are getting busy, too. Here's Global News reporter Jennifer Palma. It's coming in waves, I have to say. Uh, there's lineups and they clear everyone through, but there is definitely a steady stream of people coming in and there are a lot of cars outside of YVR. Okay, and that's where there's, I know, quite a bit of advice this morning about how to deal with the situation, right? Absolutely. So they're expecting 90,000 people to come through here starting today until January 6th. That is a lot of people. So first pack your patients and then make sure that you don't pack your Christmas presents. If you do, do not wrap them, of course. Make sure that they are unwrapped so that they can be screened if need be. Otherwise, they will be ripping them apart to look in there. Uh, also, yeah, you don't want to deal with that, no, right? you don't. Uh, make sure you've got the proper limits for liquids, gels, and aerosols in your carry-on baggage. Hopefully, everyone has gotten that message. That's been been for years and years now, but I, they're still holding strong to that. And if you're driving to the airport, like I said, there are a lot of cars out there. If you need to park, pre-book your space. Because, again, 90,000 people a day from now until January 6th, parking is going to be at a premium for sure. And finally, give yourself plenty of time to check in, clear security, and make it to the gate. Uh, That's where things can slow down. So they're saying domestic, give yourself about 90 minutes prior to departure. National, two hours, and international, three hours. And we just spoke to a bunch of people who are going to Mexico. Their flight is closer to noon. They said they want to get here in time to have breakfast and just start enjoying their vacation All now. right. I love those people because that sounds like <laughs> something I would do. Uh, any concerns about delays at this point because of weather back east? No, right now, uh, there's nothing seems to be delayed at this point. But that, of course, could change in a moment, blink of an eye. Okay, that's Jennifer Palma speaking to uh, Simi Sarah earlier today on the situation at YVR. Let's get an update on the weather now with Mark Madriga, Global BC's Chief Meteorologist. Hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, sounds like they're really getting walloped in the interior, though, eh? <laughs> yeah, they sure are. You know, just quickly, I was just looking across the country. It's uh, it's pretty cold back east, but at least it's nice and sunny there, so that's some good news. But you bet, Mike. The uh, the BC interior, uh, down the valleys, it's, uh, it's more a mix of some rain showers and a little snow if you come just a bit above the valley bottoms. But for sure, those mountain passes are uh, getting hammered. And uh, Environment Canada just pumped out, which is good, just pumped out a bunch of numbers, so... Uh, uh, on Twitter and uh, through the various feeds uh, to update our snowfall uh, totals up to 10 a.m. And anywhere from 40 to 72 centimeters has fallen on the Coquihalla Highway between Hope and Merritt. Allison Pass has picked up close to 70. Uh, those are the two hardest hit areas so far. And this is since the storm began, uh, I guess, early yesterday. Uh, uh, areas uh, between Kamloops and Merritt on the highway there, about a half that or a 
third of that, so it's a lot less there. The Okanagan connector has, uh, where are we, 20 centimeters in there. So that's what's fallen, and it's still snowing through there, although it has let up a little on those passes, uh, but that uh, snow will uh, really pick up again this afternoon and tonight. So further amounts on the Coquihalla between Hope and Merritt of 25 to 35 centimeters. Uh, the Okanagan, yeah, the Okanagan connector, 15 to 25, and uh, between Merritt and Kamloops, 15 to 20. Allison Pass will uh, will be also the same as the Coquihalla, close to 35 more centimeters on top of the 70 they've had. So really, it's just going to keep snowing in there today and most of tomorrow for those passes. But excellent news, Mike, as we get into Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, and maybe even Christmas Day. That is a, a big drying trend, so it'll be cleanup mode starting Sunday for those oh. passes. But, yeah, those trying to get That's through good. today and through tomorrow. Yeah, no no way. I'm not going anyway. How about you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Have you, you ever, have you ever seen that reality TV show about the Coquihalla Highway <laughs> called Highway Through Hell? <laughs> I sure have. Yes, I have. Oh, man. Uh, I remember that when they first brought, uh, started that show, I thought, oh, they'll make a reality TV show about anything. Really? They're going to do yeah. a show about the Coca House? When oh, I watch man. it, it's pretty awesome. You know, it shows these guys, you know, these heavy trucks going off the road and these guys going out in extreme weather to yeah. rescue people. It's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good show. Man, they're going to, they might have some material here in the next couple of days here with the dump of snow they're getting on the Coke right now. I think so. Those guys are fearless. I've I've driven through there, not in big snowstorms. I try to avoid it, and it's been several years. When I was younger, I used to try to cruise there uh, through there anytime. If you know, if there's a concert playing in Kamloops or something going on up in the interior, I'm the first yeah. one on the road. But not anymore. I uh, I want no part of it. So. Um, uh, yeah, those traveling, I know for Christmas, of course, today's a day to go and, and tomorrow, but it sure looks messy through there. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday are your best days as it'll be clean up, as I say, uh, Mike. Okay, with that drying trend that you mentioned marketing into next mm-hmm. week, does that mean that the chances of a white Christmas in Metro Vancouver pretty much zero? Well, close to it. Uh, I notice Environment Canada has been hinting at a chance of showers or flurries and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and I see what they're getting at. It's more of a computer projection, whereas they're picking up little bits of moisture on some of the computer charts for that time frame. It's very minor in my view, but I suppose there's always a chance, Mike, of uh, of a mixed rain and snow shower uh, sometime Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. It's an outside chance. It's not a big weather system coming in, but just... Uh, you know, a tiny little trough of low pressure. So to answer your question, I would say very low chance of a white Christmas in the in the Vancouver area close to sea level. You yeah. may have a, a, a light shower or flurry pop up Tuesday night, early Wednesday as an outside chance. That's the way it looks right now, at least locally. But certainly the BC interior, a lot of areas will be into white Christmas mode this year. What's causing all that snow in the interior? Is some big weather system dumping it all? Yeah, it's well. What they they've come up with this term, atmospheric river. I don't know yeah, how far yeah. this goes back. I know, what is that? It's atmospheric always river. Well, I know it used to be the Pineapple Express, although this isn't extremely warm air like the Pineapple Express, but it's a similar thing where you get this, the jet stream taking direct aim. In this case, it's towards southwestern BC, the southern BC interior, Washington and Oregon. So you see this plume of moisture coming in off the Pacific and taking aim at us. And of course, it falls as rain down low and snow in the mountain passes. Uh, so just a, a, a consistent stationary uh, front over us, basically, that keeps dropping the 
precipitation, and it's not moving much today or tomorrow, as mentioned, but by Sunday it will get out of here and head more toward Idaho and Montana, and we'll, uh, we'll dry nicely at that time. But, you know, until then, uh, at least in the interior especially, it looks, uh, it looks pretty snowy as that front sits over us. The atmospheric river, Mike. The atmospheric river, yeah, yeah. We're really getting walloped by it. Mark, thanks for that update. My pleasure, and I, uh, I'll probably talk to you Monday. I think I'm assigned uh, duty to chat with you, I believe it is on Monday, about uh, the Christmas forecast again. Oh, good. Okay. That sounds good. Maybe there will be a... Wait, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for the white Christmas. Sounds like, a, sounds like it's a losing bet to me, but you never know. It is a, uh, typically a losing bet. Real quickly, Mike, uh, it's a 1 in 10 odds based on past information or past uh, statistics for Vancouver. 1 in yeah. 10 chance. All right. So there's always a chance. Always a chance. All right. Keep hope alive. All right. Thanks, you, Mark. Mark Bye-bye. Madriga. Have a good one, Mark. Busy day for him. Global BC's chief meteorologist. Make sure you keep it locked right here as we continue to bring you those updates, especially that big dump of snow in the BC interior. If you're planning to drive through the interior, you want to keep an eye on those mountain passes in the interior for sure. Uh, new surveys out showing that overall Christmas donations and charitable giving down across Canada. It's a real tough situation over at the Sally Ann, the Salvation Army, and the people you see outside the stores ringing those jingle bells. And with the uh, Sally Ann kettles, nego- uh, contributions to the Salvation Army way down, something like over 70% drop down. So if you uh, see one of those Salvation Army kettles in your travels, maybe think about throwing a couple of lo- uh, loonies in there for sure. They really need it. Another time of need at, in this holiday season is the need for the gift of blood. And this is a time that many organizations, including Canadian Blood Services, are appealing for help. Listen to this report now from CKNW contributor Claire Allen. A young boy and his family from Ladner are calling on the public to give blood this holiday season. Four-year-old Cohen Yachuk has a blood disorder and requires blood transfusions. No, don't like me. But it's something that needs to be done, huh? Yeah. I don't like needles. Cohen's mom, Robin, says blood donations slow down around this time of the year. With the way the holidays line up, the clinic is closed often so they don't get as many um, people coming in as well. People get busy in the holidays, right? David Patterson is the Director of Donor Relations for the BC and Yukon region of Canadian Blood Services. And he says the need for blood donors is always there, including over the holidays. Patients don't get that vacation and we need blood every day of the year. And in fact, the only day that we don't collect blood in British Columbia is actually Christmas Day. And one of the products we're most concerned about this year is platelets. And we make platelets from the donations that generous donors give us throughout the year. But what's important there is platelets only last seven days. So it really means that we need a constant fresh supply of blood donors coming in and and giving those great gifts. Now, I will admit, I have never donated blood. I know what you're thinking. Why is Claire doing a story about donating blood if she herself has never done it? I get it. Like many people, I have a phobia of needles. Donating blood is actually something I would like to do. Maybe a New Year's resolution. So I really hope that in 2020, I'll be able to overcome my phobia and donate blood. So I asked David what advice and encouragement he could give someone like me. Well, I will tell you that you're certainly not alone. And I think it is absolutely an inhibitor for people. I think a couple of things you want to remember. One is that the people who do this in our, in our blood donor centers do this every day. That's what they do for a living. So they're very good at it. And I guess the second part was would be to consider young young boys, young kids, and, and patients across the country like Cohen, 
who are there getting those same pokes, getting blood tests on a regular basis to deal with their therapy and, and deal with the challenge that they're facing. So I think it's that perspective. Plus, we don't want you in every week. A couple of times a year would be great. So if you're able to get past that, um, think about the, the expert hands that are putting that needle in your arm, but also think about the patients that you're helping. Because giving blood is one of the most direct ways that you can have a positive impact on somebody's life. So if you're like me and you want to donate blood in the future, what are the steps? If you're a returning donor, of course, you would know that you could find a website, go to blood.ca, and you can find a clinic near you and, and book an appointment online. But if you're a new donor like yourself who's thinking about it, you can also go to blood.ca. And there's a nice eligibility quiz that will help you understand, are you likely able to give blood? So you need to be 17 years old and up and just in generally good health on the day that you're willing to donate. But again, same process. Go to blood.ca. You can find a clinic near you and book your appointment online. But if you do have questions about medication that you may be taking or travel that you may have gone on, one 888 donate Now, if you can't donate blood, there are other ways that you can help. We run a variety of programs. You can certainly give blood, as we've talked about. If you're a 17 to 35-year-old male in particular, you can join our stem cell program. Again, lots of information at blood.ca. If you're a mom who happens to be giving birth at Women's Hospital here in Vancouver, you could look into our cord blood program, a really important source of stem cells. And we make great use out of something that, that won't be used otherwise. Uh, You can also join our BC Transplant Registry. So go to blood.ca. It'll redirect you to the BC Transplant website, or you can register to become an organ and tissue donor. And, of course, there's always the money part. If you'd like, you can also donate to us financially. Again, everything's available on blood.ca. A generous thank you to the blood donors that are listening to this today. Um, many times people don't know where their blood donation goes, but, you know, uh, this week we learned about this young boy called Cohen, um, and he wouldn't be around without the gift that you give throughout the year. And the second call out would be to people who've never thought about giving blood. There's a great New Year's resolution. It doesn't cost you any money. To learn more about how to donate this holiday season and beyond, visit blood.ca. For AM 980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. Let me tell you about a fascinating story now about two guys who for many years were on opposite sides of the law, but they have now teamed up to try and make the world a better place and especially to try and keep kids from joining gangs and getting into drug dealing and other criminal activities. Stan Price is is here in the studio in Vancouver. Stan is a guy who formerly was dealing drugs in the downtown east side, turned his life around. Stan, very thanks thanks a lot for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. And also Cal Dosange, he's a Vancouver Police Department detective who's working with Stan. And Cal, I'm told, is in the elevator. And he is <laughs> he is coming up the elevator right now. There he is. Is he walking into the studio, yeah, Stan? There he is. Oh, that's good. Fashionably okay. late. Okay, he's fashionably late. That's okay. So we'll let Cal get settled in behind the microphone there. Stan, let me let me go to you first. Tell me about. Um, you know, you've had a tough life, right? And I I know you made you made some tough bad decisions earlier in your life, right? And you sort of got into dealing drugs and stuff. Can you tell me how that happened to you? Well, um, yeah, a little bit of a rough childhood. I mean. Uh, no proper direction um you know i did have father figures in my life but uh you know i was 
never had my real father, so I was always looking for acceptance in all areas, right? So I kind of found it in the wrong way, and uh, <laughs> that's where it all began. So where, where were you doing drug dealing, down on the downtown east side? I was in the downtown east side. Yeah. 100 Block was my main, uh, my main area, but uh, yeah, all over the downtown east what side. What is the... Uh the Red Alert, was that the name of a gang you were involved with? Uh, yes, they uh, started in uh, Alberta, um, but uh, one of the guys here who I met, uh, when I moved to the mainland, we, uh, there was about five of us that, you know, we didn't expect to, I didn't expect it to be what it ended up being. We ended up recruiting, you know, quite a few guys, ended up being a, an even bigger, you know, did you did you uh, ever go to jail? Yes, I I have been to uh, prison many times for multiple property crime um, assaults. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Let me talk to Cal. You there now, Cal? I am, Mike. Thank you very much hey, for Cal. your patience. I appreciate Cal, it. Thank you very much, Cal, for coming in. Cal is a Vancouver Police Department uh, detective. He is also the founder and CEO of the Kids Play Youth Foundation, which is a group that helps keep kids out of gangs. Cal, when did you first meet uh, Stan? Uh, Mike, that was uh, back during my time as a beat patrol officer in the downtown east side. So uh, you have to understand uh, the timeline here. Coming into my 20th year as a law enforcement officer, but I spent 14 years in an operational capacity, the majority of the time spent in the downtown east side in beat patrol. And Stan was a, a constant fixture in the downtown east side landscape. So from day one, uh, I took note of him. Slowly, uh, over time, you get to know the hierarchy and who's who and uh, how it's all structured. So, I mean, it was run no differently than a, uh, a corporate pyramid, so to speak, with Stan sitting right at the top. So he would keep his hands clean. He was just there in a supervisory capacity, but uh, we knew exactly who he was and what he was up to. So conversations were never polite, so to speak, and a lot of hostility and confrontational uh, behavior. <laughs> so. did, did you ever have to arrest uh, Stan? I did not. Uh, like I said, Stan uh, uh, ran a very uh, smooth operation, so he kept himself clean. Uh, we arrested multiple members of his syndicate, uh, but uh, I'd always make a point to uh, come up to Stan and let him know that uh, we got our eyes on him. And <laughs> as soon as we have enough evidence, uh, him uh, and his crew will be going down. So, like I said, I mean, it was um, it, there was a lot of hostility there uh, because the thing is, it was that thin blue line that separated order from chaos, so to speak. And I would just let him know uh, that... Um, what he was essentially engaging in was uh, very destructive behavior that was uh, resulting in a lot of chaos and uh, destroying people's lives. Uh, a lot of these individuals were uh, the vulnerable segment of society, and uh, he was preying on, on their right. uh, addictions. Stan, what was it like for you back then, and uh, what did you think of Cal back then when you guys were on the opposite sides of the law there? Well, uh, I didn't have a lot of nice things to say about Cal back then uh you know like he said we're on opposite sides of the thin blue line right so you know i mean he obviously seen something that i didn't that i had potential to be doing something other than what i was doing at that time okay let's let's uh did you have any rough any rough rides down in this like do you ever have any uh situations where you feared for your life i mean you, you got into some you got into some real violence oh yeah, over the yeah years, right? i sure did um i mean you know in that lifestyle you're gonna you know, accumulate enemies and, you know, you're obviously going to run into some tension somewhere. And, uh, I, I did end up doing that. I just, uh, I happened to be alone one time and I ran into, um, a group of arrival, 
a rival gang in a, in a park that I was riding by on a bike. And, uh, yeah, we, there was a little confrontation, and I handled it very well. Um, Is that the one where so you got sprayed with some bear spray? Yes, I did end up getting bear maced, um, and there was gunshots. Um, wow. I was actually lucky to be to make it out of that situation. Okay, let's talk about how you turned your life around, Stan. Like, what was the turning point for you? And then I know that you reached out to Cal for help, right? What happened? Well, I seen the lifestyle that I was living for what it really was, and it was not just affecting... I wasn't just out there preying on vulnerable people. It was affecting me as a person. It was affecting the people around me, like people that I loved. It was affecting just my everyday life. It made me a person that... I knew it's it wasn't me. It just you know living that lifestyle, you get caught up in you know you know you got to be yeah. out there doing this, and then you don't know how to separate those two. Right? You got so fam? It, you got family your own? You got kids? Yes, I do. I have um, two stepkids from a previous uh, previous marriage, and I have um, four of my own children. Okay, Cal. When did Stan? come to you when did he reach out to you stan reached out to me approximately two years ago uh, so basically on account of the work that i was doing in the downtown east side seeing the steady stream of kids that were going through the drug and gang scene and then we're apprehending and pushing them to the criminal justice system i just thought enough was enough and so when we started engaging these kids through positive constructive outlets that was back in 2008 that essentially became the plant seed uh, to plant for Kids Play Foundation back in 2015. So Stan had been watching me uh, from 2015 uh, up till the point that he reached out to me, uh, taking note of uh, a lot of the good work that we were doing in the community, and he could see that our uh, efforts were sincere and authentic. And I think that was a big turning point there because uh, that was enough of an impetus and catalyst for him to reach out to me and say, hey, look, I see the good work that you're doing, and I want to be a part of that process, and I'm sick of this life, and I'm ready to leave. So at first, I mean, there was a lot of doubt, uh, but I gave him the benefit of the doubt and decided to sit down with him nonetheless. Uh, and I could see that his emotions were raw and visceral when we first met. I mean, he was quite emotional, uh, primarily on account of the fact that uh, he, there was potential for him to lose his son uh, to drug addiction. And he didn't want that. Uh, he truly deep down inside at his core, which is something I'd seen all along, he was a good human being that just needed some guidance and support. And uh, I think that infrastructure was lacking. So uh, we were able to provide him that platform. Stan, we mentioned just before the break, Hal mentioned that one of the reasons that you reached out to him was you were worried about your son, right? What was happening with your son? Uh, yes. Um, he was kind of brought into the, into the gang. I mean, you know, he didn't live with me and his mom, but, you know, he seen everything that I was doing and he wanted, wanted to be a part of it. And um, I didn't know that he was struggling with addiction before, and then um, he ended up working for me, and then he was, uh, he battled his addictions, and, you know, he ended up getting in trouble with the other guys, and, you know, that uh, kind of opened my eyes for what it really was, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a vicious life. Okay, let's, let's, how's he doing now? He's still in active addiction, and, uh, you know, he reaches out to me every once in a while, but you know, he's so deep in his addiction right now. I, you know, I wish there was a lot more I could do for him, but you know, when that, when you're that deep in addiction, there's only so much you could do for a person, right? I'm sorry to hear that, Stan. Uh, and I, and I hope, I hope the, for the best for him. Cal, let me, let's talk about the, the work you guys are doing together now. So Cal, tell me about your work with uh, your foundation and the work you do with Stan here to try and 
prevent kids from getting into this lifestyle? Yeah, so Mike, when I created Kids Play Foundation, it was built on a two-tier uh, philosophical ideology. Number one, that it's completely volunteer-based, so no one gets paid. Every cent goes right back into the community. And secondly, all our programs are absolutely free of cost, so we don't want any child to be uh, deprived of that opportunity because it might be financially prohibitive on their parents. But we developed into four streams over time. Uh, first and foremost is sports. Uh, so we put on free tournaments, uh, free sporting activities for kids of all ages, absolutely free of cost, and different types of sports because we want engagement, positive, constructive outlets. So I strongly believe in sports because you learn a lot from it. Second stream is education. We put on forums, conferences, presentations, which we do with the Drug and Gang presentation team, which Stan is part of. Uh, number three, mentorship programs. We run mentorship programs in elementary schools because I believe in early development uh, in Abbotsford, in Surrey, in Langley, and now we're potentially looking at Vancouver. And last but not least, uh, teaching kids about their civic responsibilities, so engaging them with the environment uh, and l- teaching them about uh, tree planting uh, so that they become connected. But the... Uh, the educational component, uh, that's extremely important to me because I believe that that provides uh, uh, educational awareness, uh, not to kids, but parents as well. I strongly believe in engaging parents in the process uh, because if you take a look at truth's functionality with respect to a child's trajectory, it starts at home. Uh, they're a byproduct of their environment. Uh, Stan can attest to that. But by Stan coming in, I'll tell you, Mike, it's one thing for me to step up on stage and talk to the kids and... Uh, patronize them to some degree with rhetoric about uh, staying off drugs and staying on the right track and but they're hearing that from a police officer it's another thing when they hear it from stan who's raw and visceral and gets on stage and touches these kids with his emotions and uh, teach um uses his personal struggles and story and adversity of adversity uh, to connect with these kids and they're a lot more receptive to that stan tell me what, what do you tell these kids when you get up on stage like that oh i mean you know Everybody glamorizes the gangster lifestyle, right? Like, it's not, like, I get into detail. I mean, there is certain times where I have to hold back where there's a younger crowd. But for the most part, I get raw into detail. And you know what? It's it's not what what they see. You know, it's not what you see in the movies. It's not what anybody's going to tell you. It's a vicious life. What, what kind of, what are some of the raw details that you tell that you share with them? I mean, it's uh, you're living off. Of, I, w- I was living off of people's misery, like, and you know, it's like you think you're doing such a, a good thing for yourself, and it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's actually it ruined everything around me, and it made me a person that I knew deep down that I wasn't. What kind of reaction do you get from kids? Do they ever any of them? Do you have any personal interactions with any of them? Do they come up to you and share their own stories with you? Um, we actually have had other members of our team have uh, the other kids reach out to them, and uh, you know what to say that our our speeches. I don't leave my email or anything with uh, with any of the kids. Some of the guys do, but we do get a lot of feedback saying, you know what, this kind of, it really opened my eyes. Stan, what's it been like for you to, to leave that kind of gang lifestyle? Is that, was that a dangerous decision for you? I mean, do any of your former kind of criminal colleagues look at you and, and you know, are unhappy that you did that? I'm, I'm sure they're not happy with what I'm doing right now. I can actually guarantee that they're not happy because it was, it was my, actually my rule that if you leave, you're, you're done. You'll get taken care of. Well, do you feel like you're in, in danger at all? I could be. But I kind of I avoid uh, all areas where I could be in any confrontation with any of them. I don't associate with any anybody that's a part of that lifestyle. 
Cal, what's that like? It's kind of a dangerous situation for Stan, isn't it? It is, Mike, but you have to keep in mind it's that it's a firm decision that he's made and he's come to terms with it. And so have I, for that matter. And we both understand what we were getting ourselves into when I became a police officer and he engaged in that lifestyle. To some degree, you understand the danger that's associated with the lifestyle. More importantly than that, he appreciates and recognizes the danger that's associated with exiting that lifestyle and uh, what's lurking around the corner there. But in the same vein, I'll tell you one thing. If that's not a testament to his character, I don't know what is because for somebody to recognize their extreme dangers to leaving that lifestyle does it nonetheless. I speak I think speaks volumes to the person's character and their value system. We just got one minute left here, Stan. What are you hoping to do with your life now? You're working with Cal, but are you are you trying to get into a, a sort of a different career path or anything like that? Uh, yes, I am. I was. I'm actually um, looking into uh, addictions counseling. Mm-hmm. You know, just I'll spend the rest of my life giving back, and you know, hoping people don't make the same life choices I made. Stan, I think it's some, a courageous decision that you've made, and you guys are doing good work. And I want to thank both of you for coming into the studio today to talk about it. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, Mike, thanks. thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. you thanks, Mike. Thank, thank you. That's Cal Dosan. He's a Vancouver Police Department detective. His youth foundation is the Kids Play Youth Foundation. He works with keeping kids out of gangs. Stan Price, former drug leader and gang leader in the downtown east side, turned his life around. He's working with Cal now to try and stop kids from making the same mistakes that he did. Take a look back at the year in beer. British Columbia has become like ground zero for the craft beer revolution going on across Canada, North America. So many new breweries opening in BC. It's almost like every week it seems like there's a new brewery opens up. Lots of brewed in BC beers win huge awards all around the world. Hopes for 2020 is going to keep it going here. And of course, it's Christmas time. So a lot of people like to sample a few special Christmas beers. So let's talk about all that stuff with the best guest we can get on it. Ken Beatty, he is the executive director of the BC Craft Brewers Guild. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Ken. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Merry Christmas and congratulations on another awesome year here. How many breweries opened up in BC this year? There is 27 new breweries in BC. We're one shy of uh, last year's uh, output. <laughs> it just it just keeps going. Like every time I talk to you, there's like a couple of dozen new breweries have opened up. Yeah, we're we're getting real close to 200 across the province, wow. which is great. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, 27 new breweries, so that's like an average of one every two weeks. There's a new brewery opens up in BC. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. What were some so, of the ones that opened up in 2019? Well, it's interesting. They've been kind of concentrated in some areas, a lot of uh, them. Five opened in Kelowna. Um, Kelowna Brewing Company, Barn Owl, Copper Brewing, Rustic Reel, Jackknife. There was uh, four on the island, uh, one in Victoria, New Tradition in Comox, Ace in Courtney, Cliffside in Nanaimo, three in Langley. In fact, the two most recent breweries are both in Langley. There was Five Roads Farm Country opened about a week ago and Camp opened yesterday, so it's the most recent. And kind of also exciting, there's a brewery in Merritt now, uh, though I guess snowed under uh, by the sounds of it. Um, one in uh, Revelstoke and in Castlegar, which are kind of uh, small communities that have added added breweries to them. Revelstoke's had a brewery there forever, but uh, Mount Begbie. But uh, there is uh, new breweries in those centers. So 
and a couple in Vancouver and a couple in the Lower Mainland, so, and, you know, the interior. Okay, it continues to be an amazing success story for this industry, and I'm, I'm always amazed every time I talk to you, hearing all these new breweries open up. What do you think is, is driving that? Like, why are so many breweries opening up? Did the government change some of the rules to make it easier or something? Or Well, they, they, did, they did years ago uh, change. Uh, the, the biggest change was allowing tasting rooms, and once yeah. you allowed tasting rooms and allowed people to go to the local brewery and meet the local brew ma- maker and interact with not only their own people but people who come to visit um you know breweries and beer beer tourism is a major player we have a a beer tourism uh, program called the bc ale trail uh that is an app that allows you to uh investigate 116 breweries around the province on 18 uh self-guided tours so um that that sense of community and 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 going into places whether it be neighborhoods or towns and um, meeting at the meeting at the actual brewery, they become hubs of social interaction. Okay, that's great. This ale trail thing that you got and, and an app for your smartphone, I think, is is just shows how smart you guys here are marketing this stuff. Tell me about that app. And I I think you said to me there's a promotion going on if people install the app on their phone, they went they get some yeah, points or something. Yeah. Okay, so what's the BC Ale Trail app is available on uh, Google Play and the App Store. And knowing that we were coming on and it's the Christmas season, we wanted to give uh, your your listeners uh, opportunity to sign up for the app. It's free. And if you sign up today, it's gamified. So when you enter the location, it geolocates once you get online. And it just gives you 10 points generally in each location. Um, and so it gets a bit of a game that you get to, to go around. And those points are redeemable for prizes and merchandise at the uh, each each uh, brewery decides what that is. Oh. But if you if you go on today, we're going to because we're in a giving mood and we've had such a great year. We're going to give you 25 points if you sign up at the BC Ale Trail. And again, available on the App Store or uh, Google Play. Oh, and it's free. It's free. It's free. I mean, you can't say any better than that. My God, yeah. you know, the thing is free. So, exactly. You know, yeah. Okay. The BC Ale Trail is the name of the app, and so the way that works, I guess, it just shows you the location of uh, like local breweries wherever you are in the province. Is that how it works? Yeah, completely. It gives you a list. It, it geolocates you to the nearest brewery uh, trail in your area when you when you get on the app. And then it lists the breweries and, and tells you uh, what what they're featuring and where they're located. And so you're able to guide yourself around. Uh, in, some are walking tours, some are driving tours, um, you know, uh, some are biking tours, however you want to do it. But obviously, we're always uh, stressing a safe, responsible ride home. Of course. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So the BC Ale Trail, today's the day to put that app on your phone. I think that's a good idea. What about awards? Because I know you BC breweries have won some incredible kind of world-class awards for the quality of the beer that's being produced here. Were there any big awards in 2019? Yeah. I mean, we, we again dominate. We do very well. We, we Though we're not the largest per capita um, province with the largest amount of breweries, we do the lion's share. We do about 30 to 35% of all the awards given out at the Canadian Craft Brewers Awards, wow. which was in uh, back in Toronto this year, but it's going to be in Victoria in 2020. Oh. And uh, Central City After Hours Pale Ale won the best beer in Canada. So that, uh, that was a big uh, honor for us, uh, wow. certainly. And we had tons of gold medal winners and uh, medal winners in general. In, in total, I think it was 50-plus awards that we brought home 
And That's then uh, the BC Beer Awards, um, it, it was great. This year, Quantlin uh, Polytech University Brewing Program won the Brewery of the Year. So that is the, the kids who are learning. They're in a two-year program, and they're learning to, to work in the, in the industry. And when they come out, they virtually all of them get hired in the business. And uh, they won the, BC, uh, uh, the Brewery of the Year at the BC Beer Awards in the fall. Oh my God! You mean the Quantlin? The kids are brewing beer over at Quantlin University, and they won Brewery of the Year. Wow! They did so, yeah, wow. yeah. They're, it's a it's a solid program, and the, the most I I happened to, to teach a course there with Nancy Moore, and she won a Legend uh, in Brewing Award. She's been in the beer industry in BC for the past forty years, so she was definitely uh, breaking barriers back forty years ago. Um, and we we both lost count of not only was it the students who won but ex-students alumni who were walking across the stage i think we gave up counting it about 28 brewers who were walking across the stage getting uh getting uh, awards but they had come from the Quantlin program so super right. successful wow that's amazing because with such a booming business here i mean one of the things i love about it is the employment generated by this i mean i think it's just awesome so i mean you got a program going strong there at Quantlin college there training people to for this industry i guess they can just there's no lack of jobs i guess out there right yeah, I mean that that's the great thing that there's we now we estimate that we employ about 4500 people in the industry between the breweries and the brew pubs that are members um across the province we're in 60 plus communities. So as I say these this is the attraction and why people are, you know, the brewery in Merritt who would have thought, right? But the guy knows that there's there's a there's a need for that and people want to hang out in know the local meet locals and and be in the local environment. So um, and, and there's a lot of community pride between the, the communities on, on who makes the best beer. So that's always right. fun, too. Okay, speaking to Ken Beatty from the BC Craft Brewers Guild, uh, just before we take a break, Ken, and then uh, I'll open the phone lines here, so if people want to phone up and give a shout-out to their favorite brewed in BC beer, that'll be your opportunity here coming up. But real quickly, uh, Ken, it's Christmas time, so I know a lot of these breweries, they, a lot of them make like a Christmas uh, beer. Yes. And in fact, most do. You'll see lots of beers with chocolates and lots of uh, a lot of the beers are higher alcohol beers. There's a certain style called barley wines or Russian imperial stouts come out around this year. Um, they're to be uh, enjoyed over a period of time. They're not the beer to drink after a hockey game. Um, but there's a couple. Yeah, a couple of recommendations. Uh, Daggerad makes an anno. Uh, it's eight and a half percent alcohol. It's made with pure juice and coriander it's got a great effervescence to it it could be cellared but it's so good i don't think i would i wouldn't wait on it <laughs> i'd get it in you um Hoyne makes a great beer uh beautiful packaging in fact there's a poem about gratitude from sean Hoyne, the brew master who who uh makes the beer he's the head of Hoyne brewing it's called the winter warmer and it's in beautiful packaging and that beer is called gratitude and then up in uh to up in the north part of the bc ale trail Barkerville makes a great winter ale called Cold Snap. Uh, got some orange peel, ginger, and vanilla in it. So there's a lot of really interesting flavors um, to try. But I would recommend going to your local brewery and see what they have on tap that yeah. they've done for the Christmas season. Ken, congratulations on another great year. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. You bet. Happy Thank Christmas. You.
Thank you. Same to you. That's Ken Beatty, Executive Director of BC Craft Brewers Guild. Well, as you heard on your news there, Adam Olson, the Green Party MLA, just been appointed now as the interim leader of the party. Andrew Weaver, uh, the Green Party leader, stepping down next month. Adam Olson will step in as the interim leader pending the selection of a permanent leader of the party. Adam Olson joins me now. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on your appointment as the interim leader here. What made you decide to uh, step forward to take this one? Because I know if you're interim leader, that means you can't run for the permanent leadership of the party, right? So what was your thought process here in this decision? That's true. Uh, well, you know, I've been uh, I've been an elected uh, member of the legislature now for the past uh, two and a half years, I guess, two and a half years now. And uh, enjoying my enjoying my role as an MLA, I am also uh, the father of two young children. I've got a 12 year old and a seven year old. And uh, as we were looking at uh, at you know what the role of the leader of the party is going to be going forward, uh, I felt that it was uh, you know the time of my life, uh, the, the time in my kids' life, and in in uh, our little family's life that uh, didn't uh, suit to be expanding my role or expanding my responsibilities at this point. So uh, I'm happy to, uh, to fill in. It's a, it's a, the interim leader role is a role that I've, uh, I've played uh, before from uh, 2013 to 2015, and uh, it's one that I'm honoured to uh, have the opportunity as well and now. Okay, stepping in as the interim leader, what does that mean for your relationship with the, the governing NDP? And what about the deal that you guys got, the confidence and supply agreement to keep mm. John Horgan in the Premier's office and the NDP in power? Does that agreement continue under your interim leadership of the party? Well, I think what's important, Mike, is uh, that we're very clear on, on how that agreement works. Uh, the agreement was signed between... Uh, all members of the BC NDP caucus individually and the three members of the BC Green caucus individually. So it was not an agreement that was signed uh, by, you know, the two leaders or the, you or the, the leadership. Well, I signed it as well. And so right. my, my relationship with the BC NDP doesn't change. Uh, what changes is my role within the BC Green caucus. I step in as the, uh, as the interim leader. Uh, my my role changes uh, within uh, the respect to uh, with the BC Green Party Provincial Council and the membership and the the Green Party staff here in the uh, in the office, but the role uh, and the relationship uh, with the uh, confidence and supply agreement uh, does not change uh, going forward. Okay, you're stepping into some big shoes there with Andrew Weaver. I think it's going to go down as kind of an historic figure, really, for everything that he's achieved as as the leader of this party. Do you sort of see your leadership style or priorities being different from his? Well, I mean, certainly the role is a much different role as an interim leader. It's like I said, it's one that I've I've filled in the past. Uh, I certainly um, I'm under no illusions that I've not been elected to. The leader by the membership of the party, and so from my perspective, I have a role to to continue to facilitate uh, good governance in the legislature and make sure that we uh, focus on our priorities and make sure that we continue to build space. and And I think the British Columbians have seen a good reason why we have uh, a BC Green Party in the legislature. The role that we've played over the past two and a half years, uh, and it's also to um, make sure that uh, in the time when the party is in this exciting time when the party is electing a new leader that uh, I continue to provide uh, stable leadership, uh, both uh, internally and externally. Don't you think that this party at some point, Adam, has to step out from the shadow of this NDP government and this NDP premier? Because I think there's a danger that 
the Green Party starts to look like you guys are just kind of like the lapdog for the NDP. Doesn't a new leader have to step out and start differentiating yourselves in this party away from the New Democrats? Um, I think that I think that we have uh, done that to an extent. Uh, certainly, the uh, the a new leader when they come in uh, will have the opportunity uh, to provide uh, to to provide that uh, kind of tone and and that kind of vision. And uh, I expect that uh, you know as we build towards that day in June, um, you know that uh, that uh, through a leadership race that will become more defined. Uh, I think that uh, the BC Greens have done. Uh, a remarkable job, uh, if I may say so myself, I'm a part of this, uh, in creating a stable government for British Columbia. And certainly uh, the confidence and supply agreement is not a, a governing situation that uh, British Columbia has any experience with. The, neither do the BC Greens nor the BC NDP. And we've made it work uh, pretty well by by focusing on our shared values. Uh, we have some very distinct differences. We We did not support, we voted 14 times against uh, the LNG expansion uh, in this province. Uh, we have been uh, very, very uh, strong when it comes to uh, uh, forestry-related issues. And so th- there are definitely differences, differences of opinion but, between us and our partners, but we will. Uh, we also have a responsibility to ensure that there's a stable government in this province. Right. But, do you, but do you continue to prop up that stable government for the, in- the entire maximum length of this mandate? I mean, do you see this government going all the way to the fall of 2021, the next scheduled election? Or do you think the Green Party's got to kind of step out in its own at some point before that? Um, well, I think I think certainly as as I've said right from the, the get go that it's our responsibility as elected uh, when when British Columbians go to the polls and elect members of the Legislative Assembly, it's our responsibility to make it work, not to make it break. Well, do you, do you and think so? That, do you think there'll be an election in twenty twenty? Uh, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not in the business of predicting elections. I'm in the business of governing in the province, and that's what I intend on doing. And I intend on meeting with the premier and letting them know that we will continue to be a productive partner, but we will also be uh, in our role as, as, uh, as an opposition party. We'll okay. also be working to hold government accountable. Okay. You're the interim leader. That means you can't run for the permanent leadership of the party. Correct. I think it's pretty obvious now your, your colleague, Sonia, first to know the other green party MLA will run for the permanent leadership of the party. Would you support her? Uh, well, I'm, my my role is not to get involved in a leadership race. Uh, I don't know that Sonia has made an announcement that she's going to run. That will be uh, up to her and the decisions that she makes. She hasn't made uh, an annu- is- she hasn't made an announcement, but I I pre- I'll predict right now that she will run for it. Okay, well that's your prediction. I would just suggest that my role is to uh, to facilitate a process that's fair and open, one that's yeah. inclusive, one that British Columbians can get excited about, and to and to continue to. Do you think- uh, Okay, go ahead. Hey, Adam, do you think that yeah. uh, here's another I'll make another prediction for you. I say sure. Yanina Campbell, who is uh, the deputy leader of the party, and she's a former New Westminster School trustee. I, I know I, Yanina I, well, yeah. I, I'm sure you do. I suggest to you she will run for the, the party leadership as well. Do you think okay. this party do you think this party needs to branch out and select a new leader from outside of the environmental activism movement? outside of the southern Vancouver Island, greater Victoria area, and maybe go with someone like Yanina Campbell from the, from the mainland who's got a more sort of diverse background? Well, what I would suggest to you is that the BC Greens have a lot of work to do to build relationships across the province. I'm not going to uh, predetermine what the outcome of the leadership race is going to be. I'll just say I, my, my hope is that we have an exciting race with a, multiple candidates from across the province representing 
not just Vancouver Island or the lower mainland or rural British Columbia, but that has a broad and diverse representation of all of the the okay. uh, different communities in our province. We've, we've got a very diverse province that, that cannot be broken down into the binaries, this or that. We, we have to be able to develop leadership that respects okay. and understands that there's this diversity in the province. Congratulations on your appointment, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mr. Smith. I look forward to seeing you in the new year. Okay, Mr. Olson. Thank you. Take That's care. Ad- All the best to you. Thank you. Same to you. That's Adam Olson. He is the newly appointed interim leader of the BC Green Party. Let's get instantaneous reaction and analysis now from Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief Global News. Hey, Keith. Hey, Smitty. So I know you're listening to that interview yeah. there. What do you think about his take on it here? Well, no surprise, obviously. He's going to... I think most of us figured it was going to be Adam Olson or Sonia Furston, one of the sitting uh, uh, MLAs now that Weaver's stepping down. So I talked to Adam about a month ago. I know he was mulling it over. He did mention his young family. I think that was a decisive factor here, why he's not uh, seeking the permanent. Uh, right, because if you're leadership. the interim, you can't yeah. run for the permanent. Yeah, Adam's pretty uh, ca- capable. I think he's carved out a, a good yeah. niche in the House, so I think yeah. he's, a, he's a good choice. Uh, but interesting, some of the questions he asked him, though, were sort of very pointed ones, and ones the, the Greens have to ask themselves is, uh, right now, there's sort of typecasts as the South Vancouver, uh, you know, environmental Vancouver activist Island. party, and they uh, they want to expand that. You mentioned Yanina Campbell, the yeah. former trustee in New Westminster, uh, who re- appears regularly on Global. Actually, we use her as a panelist uh, yeah. representing the Green Party. She's quite capable as well. Uh, will she run? And and that would be a different uh, leader uh, for the Greens than just the what's been so far South Vancouver Island, both ne- federally and and uh, for years with Elizabeth May, and now you've got you know South Vancouver. Around Paul Manley is an M- MP in, from Nanaimo. I mean, it's very mm. much uh, a Vancouver Island party, a South right. Vancouver Island party. And I think the challenge for the Greens is to get beyond that. And that may play out in the leadership race. Right. So if you have Sonia first to now run for the leadership of the party, which I believe she will. And she's uh, good, too. She's, certainly she's good. Yeah. But, you know, people could look at, you know, some people might look at her and say, wait a sec, if we want to expand the appeal of this party, do we really want to get, like you said, another person from the greater Victoria area who has a background as an environmental Mm -hmm. activist? I mean, that's her background before she got into politics. You know, if you put someone like that in, are you sort of pigeonholing yourself as a narrow well, appeal party? I think that's one of the risks the Greens run. Uh, their identity, I think, right now is very limited and very sort of shackled by by one or two issues. And I think the Greens have to be a little worried about, uh, and I thought you asked a great question when you asked Adam Olson, do, at some point, do you have to step out and differentiate yourself from the NDP? That's because, a point you've been making frequently. Yeah, it, it, there's many examples in history where the junior partner in either a coalition or propping up a minority uh, government gets big buried in the next election because right. the electorate sees no difference between the two parties. Certainly the Nanaimo by-election, uh, which saw Sheila Malcolmson uh, win, uh, you saw the, the green vote there collapse. It just didn't turn out. Yeah. And the liberal vote went up, which suggests at the very least some green voters from 2017 appear to have voted for the BC Liberals. And the Greens have to be worried about that. That that's it was How much of that vote in 2017, 17% of the electorate voted green, was that all like a rah-rah green vote or was a chunk of it, and I've always thought this from day one, was a chunk of it an anti-Christy Clark protest vote. They didn't want yeah. to necessarily vote NDP. They didn't want to vote for Christy Clark. Right. So they parked their vote with the Greens. And the Greens, the challenge for the Greens is to broaden their appeal, expand their voter universe. And uh, I think the leadership uh, race provides an opportunity to do that, but also an opportunity to fail. Yeah. And it's also why I think it, it raises the possibility of an election, I think, mm-hmm. in, in 2020, because I think you're right. I think this party at some point has got to sort of branch out because right now, if they're just seen as just the party that keeps the NDP in power, 
kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. John Horgan's lap dog or his poodle or something, <laughs> then that's a recipe for disaster in the next election. And that's why I think at some point uh, this governing agreement, this confidence and supply agreement maybe unravels as the party, as the Green Party realizes if we don't, if we prop these guys up forever all the way into the fall of 2021, what what does that say to the voters of this province well, in the next election? I think they got to, at some point, stand up on their own two feet and say, you know, we're not with the NDP anymore here. And they've got limited opportunities to do that because they can only do that on confidence votes. And there's really only one, maybe two confidence votes a year. There's a vote on the budget. Yeah. I don't see them taking on the NDP this spring with this spring's budget. I okay. don't think uh, Adam's going to do that. Well, he but, said himself, you know, I'm looking at ways yeah. to continue to support Horgan. But we get to the spring of 2021. The vote on paper is, you know, six months away. Is that the window? the Greens used to perhaps uh, send a signal that they want to do something different. Uh, I don't think Adam's going to be talking about that in any great detail, but I think that may be a more likely window for the Greens to take some sort of action. But as it stands right now, I think the Greens are very comfortable with the situation. They're supporting the NDP. The NDP is very comfortable with what the Greens do around the legislature. They haven't stopped the NDP from some big uh, ticket decisions, building the Site C Dam, allowing the LNG development to go through, a number of other issues. Although he made the point when I said to him, you know, when are you guys going to stop propping this party up? And he goes, oh, well, we voted against them a whole bunch yeah. of times, including on LNG. But that big LNG project still going forward. Well, and the Liberals support that. So there's, oh, yeah. you know, the Greens are off by themselves. One right. of the interesting things I, I realized at the end of the last legislative session in the fall, Adam Olson became a little more critical of the NDP in question period than his colleagues had been up until now, particularly on the issue of the BC Teachers Federation contract talks. That's still an outstanding issue. We don't know where that's going to go. And is that the issue, perhaps? that Adam Olson and the Greens suddenly carve out for themselves and say, we're not backing you on the teacher talks. It's not a confidence vote. If they side with the teachers' if union. They, if they And they were seem to be doing that in question period. Yeah. Uh, is that become sort of a, an issue that splits the two? Again, it's not a confidence vote necessarily, but it might be one of those issues that the Greens can have some fun with. Right, because right now this government's holding a very hard line yeah. against the teachers. The t- this is a teachers' union that's... Probably the most one of the most militant unions in the province. They always seem to be going on strike at some point or another, and maybe we'll see a teacher strike in the new year. Is th- is that the potential schism here between the NDP and the Greens over well, that? You know, I think it's a possibility. I mean, yeah. certainly Adam Olson in his questions was pretty pretty pointed in his criticism of Education Minister Rob Fleming, who'd looked none too happy taking those questions in question period. It was basically questions the Liberals will never throw at the NDP because they're no friends of the BCTF either. Real quickly, and just in 30 seconds, the legacy of Andrew Weaver here is he's going to be stepping down next month. I mean, this guy's kind of an historical figure, He's a historical figure. I think uh, history will remember remember him very kindly. Uh, He's an interesting guy. I quite like covering him. He's very unpredictable. Uh, You never know what you're going to get with Andrew sometimes, but uh, he's brought some life... uh, and a breath of fresh air to the legislature that was sorely lacking until he got involved. Thanks for coming in. All right, anytime. That's Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News, and his take on Adam Olson, just named as the interim leader of the B.C. Green Party. All right, did you know that every year the Conservation uh, Service in British Columbia receives more than 25,000 reports of human wildlife conflicts. Most of those calls are related to bears prowling around private properties, but those bears are often attracted to these homes because of unsecured attractants, garbage, recycling, leftover food hanging around, fruit that falls from fruit trees that's not properly picked up in time. 
This is a problem in our province, and the province is doing something about it. Let's check in now with Chris Doyle, Deputy Chief Conservation Officer for British Columbia. Hiya, Chris. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. So this is some interesting stuff that you guys did. You did a series of audits around the province to get the message out about these bear attractants. Tell me how this program worked. Well, as you know, and you mentioned, uh, bear conflicts are a serious problem in BC, and many of those conflicts are caused by insecure attractants. So there's been a lot of education done around the province uh, with regards to attractants, trying to get people to comply voluntarily. Um, However, uh, compliance in some areas wasn't good. We're still seeing bears being attracted into communities, attracted to residences and businesses by insecure attractants. And so we wanted to make sure uh, that it was clear to people that uh, it was their responsibility to manage those attractants, and it's everyone's responsibility to address this human-bear conflict issue. So over the course of uh, the fall, primarily September and October, a little bit in November, our officers did proactive uh, enforcement patrols around neighborhoods, uh, businesses, uh, residents, and we were looking for attractants that weren't secured properly or were accessible to bears, and those things include fruit trees or uh, garbage that might have been put out the night before. Uh, we also looked at uh, electric fencing around livestock and high-value crops, um, as well <clears throat> any other attractant that may be around uh, that would bring a bear in. Um, and as a result of those uh, patrols and inspections, um, uh, 76 charges were laid, 301 warnings were issued as well. We issued a 355 dangerous wildlife protection orders, and that's a legal order which directs the property owner to remove, an, or, remove or contain an attractant, and if they fail to do so, they'd be facing a uh, $575 fine. Okay, I th- I, it's great to hear that, that you guys are doing that because I think for a lot of people, maybe they don't get the message, but if, if a conservation officer comes around and, and writes them a ticket, maybe the uh, the message gets gets through. So you mentioned out of all those inspections around the province, 76 charges. What are those charges? Is that under the Wildlife Act or something, or what is that? It is. It's, a, <clears throat> it's an offense to uh, negligently store attractants that uh, will bring a, a bear in that may cause a public safety issue. And so those are wildlife act charges. What's the potential fine there if you're convicted? Um, mo- most of the charges were dealt with uh, through tickets, and it's a the initial ticket is a two hundred and thirty dollar fine. But uh, okay. the wildlife act does allow for higher fines if we elected to go through uh, a court prosecution process. Okay, you also mentioned these wildlife protection orders. That's interesting. How does that work? Yeah, so we'll go to a property, we'll identify an attractant, um, could be garbage or could be insecure fruit trees or, or fruit on the ground, um, and we can issue an order for that the person who uh, is the property owner or is residing at the property to control that attractant, clean it up or contain it somehow so it's no longer accessible to bears. Right. And then we'll do a follow-up inspection to ensure that they've complied with that order. Do you find that's pretty, pretty effective if you give a, a, a warning like that, that people will respond? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're we're trying to promote compliance. We want to gain voluntary compliance, and so we'll use the appropriate tool to get the job done. And that order uh, tends to have a good impact. Um, you know, it's a it's everybody needs to take indiv- individual responsibility for for what might may bring bears into their property. Uh, the communities also have to buy in, um, and so we also worked with municipal uh, bylaw officials. Uh, many many municipalities also have. Uh, bylaws that deal with bear attractants so we also worked with them um, to bring them into this project which uh, had an even greater impact 
Okay, I'm speaking to Chris Doyle. He's the Deputy Chief Conservation Officer for BC. Why is this important? Is it because that if you don't properly secure this garbage or fruit, as you mentioned, that it attracts bears, and do those bears typically become problem bears, like they keep hanging around? Yeah, what happens is when the bears do get into uh, insecure attractants, they become conditioned to that food source as well. They become habituated to people who are uh, in that area. So what we tend to see is an escalating level of conflict where a bear may come in, get an attractant. They've learned that that's uh, a a good source of food for them, so they'll search harder and harder for that type of attractant um, or that type of food. It'll bring them deeper into communities. Um, their fear of people uh, becomes less and less, and they yeah. become a greater public safety risk. So, you know, the attractants are putting the bears at risk because, unfortunately, a lot of times the bears uh, end up being destroyed due to, the, yeah. due to the high level of conflict. But it's also putting uh, people at risk because uh, we have bears wandering around in uh, um, developed areas where they really shouldn't be. Right. I, I remember, yeah, these bears, they kind of lose their fear of humans for sure. And I remember uh, doing some hiking uh, years ago and speaking to a, a conservation officer in a, in a park who told me, oh, the bear's more afraid of you than you're afraid of the bear. And I don't know, though, when they become conditioned to food around the neighborhood, I mean, these bears are just walking around like they, had, they get zero fear of any humans around them, right? Yeah, and that's when it becomes risky. And so we'd like to keep yeah. all bears wild. We'd like to keep bears eating natural food in natural areas and not being drawn into developed areas where conflicts can occur. Right, right. What, what are, some, are there any particular areas of the province that this is a particularly acute problem? Uh, you know, it, it really is uh, all across the province. Obviously, some uh, developed areas have larger uh, uh, bear, bear populations, um, so they'll experience higher levels of conflict. Um, as well, some communities are spread out along uh, wilderness areas. So the opportunity for bears to get into conflict is greater in some areas than others. But really, um, you know, bear conflicts are, are an issue uh, in every part of BC. Yeah, it, it seems though, I, I don't know, I often hear like in the Tri-Cities around Coquitlam. Is it a particular problem out there? Yeah, that area is particularly problematic. Um, yeah. You know, we've got good bear habitat in the area. There's a lot of people, obviously, and, um, and so, you know, some of the, the attractive enforcement was uh, done in that Tri-Cities area. And, uh, you know, certainly a lot of those communities now are taking it upon themselves by enforcing their own municipal bylaws, uh, getting involved with the Provincial Bear Smart Program to, to do what they can to uh, address the problem as well. Yeah. The tragedy here, as you mentioned, is if you get a situation where you've got a problem, bears become habituated to this food, they're not afraid of humans, they're hanging around, um, then you got, sometimes you got to take an extreme measure where you, uh, a bear is destroyed. How many bears were have been put down this year, do you know? I don't have the exact number in front of me, but, you know, any bear that gets destroyed as a result of, uh, you know, negligently stored attractants is too many. And, you know, ultimately there's too many bears destroyed in this province, and so we're trying to do something about it. Ultimately, we'd like to be at a point where we don't even have to do these patrols and everybody uh, takes individual responsibilities and the community takes responsibility so that all these attractants are secured. Yeah, what about um, when people hear about uh, bears being uh, b- bears being destroyed? I mean, it's kind of a heartbreaking thing. And b- by the way, I'm just taking a look at a global news story here from uh, a few weeks ago uh, that talked about between January 1st and October 17th this year, 521 black bears destroyed. I mean, that's a lot. That, that's it is sad. a lot. And, and that's l- sad. Like I, 
It is. Yeah. Like I said, it's, you know, it's too many, even one bear being destroyed because of, uh, you know, something that could have been prevented is too many. And it's certainly, yeah. uh, you know, it's a difficult uh, task for our officers. And that's why we're, uh, you know, directing some of the attention to the uh, attractive enforcement as well. What about relocating these bears? Like sometimes <laughs> I hear people say, like, why do we have to shoot these bears and put them down? Can't you trap them, uh, relocate them into some wilderness far away from humans and just release them is that an is that ever an option uh relocation is used occasionally but uh it really only works on bears that have uh uh don't have a level of uh or a conflict history so bears that haven't been already habituated or food condition uh the drive for those bears to return to that food source is great so we'll see bears return from uh long distances we'll also see bears then wander into a different community and as well, we you know we need to be mindful of uh, keeping the natural uh, wild population stable and not depositing uh, um, conflict animals into that population, when that, which then causes some disrupt, disruption and dispersion yeah. of the uh, the wild bears. Um, you know, additionally, um, you know we want to ensure that we're putting bears in an area where they're not going to get into conflict. As you know, there's a, a lot of uh, recreation going on throughout the province, people camping and whatnot. So we don't want to see those conflict bears get into trouble in uh, in those areas as well. Right. Well, public safety, of course, is, I guess, the top priority for you guys. And so what's the, the bottom line message you want people to know? Like, as we get to the end of the year, we're going into 2020. Um, what's the message you want the public to learn from this? Yeah, I mean, you know what? Don't take uh, don't take the gas off the pedal as far as looking after attractants around your home. There still are some bears out in some parts of the province, so be diligent. Are they not, hi- the are they not hibernating right now? Uh, yeah, most are, but there are some that will still be out, particularly in the south coast and west coast area. Um, so we'll still need to keep keep the uh, bird bird feeders under control as well as any other attractants. And we're going to pick this up again in the spring, so we'll be doing the uh, attractant enforcement again in the spring. But uh, like I said, we'd like everybody to take their own, take responsibility for what's around their residence. Uh, communities take responsibility. And so that we don't have to, uh, you know, be coming in and uh, issuing enforcement actions. But we will if people aren't willing to do that. Okay, an important message for sure. Chris, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Okay, you bet. That is Bye. Chris Doyle. He is the Deputy Chief Conservation Officer for British Columbia. It's kind of a tough day in journalism in Vancouver. It's been part of the commute for a lot of people in Metro, picking up a free copy of the Star Metro Vancouver newspaper. Today is the final print edition of that newspaper. They will st- That newsroom will still continue to operate now, but now it'll only be online, the print edition finishing today. Uh, the changes at Star Metro... 73 staff have been laid off across the country. Uh, Print papers also shutting down in Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, and Halifax. That's sad. I'll tell you what, that newspaper, that little newspaper there in that newsroom, they did a good job there. They had some very, they still have some very talented journalists there, but a lot of very talented people also being laid off. That is sad. As we know, there's lots of plenty of news organizations that are experiencing challenges at the moment. So what does the Star Metro print edition closure say about the state of journalism in Canada as 2019 comes to a close. Well, let's talk about that now with Alan Waterman. He's a journalism instructor at BCIT. He worked as a journalist at the CBC for 36 years. Alan, thanks a lot for coming on. You're very welcome, Mike. Nice to join you. 
Yeah, this is this is sad to see this paper shut down. And, and I got to tell you, like, I'm working for the Vancouver Province newspaper. Of course, we're owned by the same company as the as the Vancouver Sun. So this paper is a competitor uh, to the people I work with. But you know what? The people I work with at the province and the Vancouver Sun were just as sad to see this this paper shut down, Metro Vancouver. Because even though they're the competition, competition is a good thing. And when you see it being eroded, um, that's that's bad news. What are your thoughts on the, the this final print edition of this paper today? Yeah, I, th- I think it is sad, Mike. And it, uh, this particular paper had a unique niche market and it was a uh, hyper local it was of course you know free as soon as you stepped off SkyTrain or anything like that um, and it was also a platform where new journalists often got uh, their their feet wet in the business so it was uh, yeah it, it's sad to see that go but it's really indicative where journalism is going I don't think you know Contrary to popular belief, I don't think journalism's dying by a long shot, but it's it's morphing. And uh, the Star Weekly, it was the last major free commuter paper in Canada, and it uh, it it just uh, was so tough to make a go of it with advertising dollars going into those uh, black twin black holes of Facebook and Google. But yeah. it is a reality too. Yeah, I, I think they did a good job over there. What were your thoughts on the uh, the the product that they put out over there? I mean, did you ever did you teach any of the kids who ended up working over there? Uh, uh, a couple, but mostly our our uh, kids are going into the uh, those journalism jobs where they're demanding different skills than just print. Yeah. Uh, our our students uh, are going into uh, areas where they they have to have online skills, and that's where it's gone. That's yeah. where the, the dollars have gone. It's all online, uh, not as much in print anymore. And so uh, what we're seeing here is just, a, as it, it's a morph of the situation. You, we hear about paper after paper closing, but what we don't hear as much about is where the new journalists are going. You know, you, you've got uh, online publications like the TIE, which in spite yeah. of yeah. Uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, Google and Facebook suck everything up, uh, uh, the TIE has, thank you very much, survived extremely well. There are also other ones like the Discourse uh, that is is uh, going great guns online, and they are really making uh, headway into hyper-local. That's where it's going, hyper-local on to online. Your little weekly newspaper has closed up shop in your town. Well, it's the online business that's taken up the slack and doing great journalism, but it's all on your phone. That's where it goes. Yeah, these newspapers that are shutting down, I mean, like you say, it's kind of sad to see that, but I, I think you make a great point there that a lot of it's morphing onto online for sure. It, it's still tough to see, though, because we're seeing layoffs here as well as some of these some of these news organizations uh, contract. Um, and I, re- I just feel sad for young people who go into this business hoping to make a career out of it and they're finding it tough because i remember when i was a kid my dream was to be a newspaper reporter and i was happy to have my dream come true so it's pretty tough going into this business now and to get a really good paying job like i just wonder if you could comment on that alan like i take your point that a lot of the jobs are morphing online but are are the jobs good paying jobs or there used to be a time in this country you could get a have a career in a newspaper and it'd be a good paying job that would last your whole life 
Well, that's it. You and I came up uh, through the business, whether it's uh, uh, in the paper or in broadcast, where, yeah, that was that was your uh, uh, be-all and end-all, is to get that great uh, job in broadcaster on a paper. Right. But, uh, you know, not to, to toot our own horn at BCIT, but 96% of our graduates are getting jobs in journalism within the first year. Good and they're they're generally good paying jobs right out the gate. They're not, I mean they're you're not going to go out and buy a house uh, right out of the gate, but uh, uh, but they're they're doing well and they're moving up the ladder. But they're doing it differently than we did. Uh, they're doing it with skills that uh, where they can uh, they can easily adapt to all three platforms at the same time. They can be online. They can be on radio. They can be on TV. They know how to shoot video. They know how to edit. Uh, they can do it all. They're you know they're what they used to say in in theater. They're triple threats. If you can sing, dance, and act, you're going to work. Well, now if you can uh, do video, radio, and online, you are going to work, and the jobs are out there. They're not maybe in traditional newsrooms that we're thinking of. A lot more online, a lot more corporate work now. Corporations are looking for people with a journalistic background to tell their stories. I mean, really what they're looking for are storytellers. And uh, so the, 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 uh, the the students that are coming out of our program right now are getting jobs because they've got skills that those laid-off paper uh, uh, reporters, sorry to say, don't have. Uh, and, uh, and that's the difference. You know, uh, it, it's, just, it, it's tough when you see these uh, 20-somethings uh, who are at, actually able to survive in this industry and, and, and have a career in journalism much to the chagrin of those who are in their 40s and 50s saying, I don't have that skill set, and I don't know if I want to hack this anymore. Well, that's why I guess there's maybe some hope for some of the young people who may have been laid off in this uh, downturn for Star Metro here across the country. A lot of these young kids have got, like you said, sort of multi-talented skill sets. Maybe they can turn around and get an, and get a job somewhere else, another organization. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I think I think the odds are really in their favor. Uh, for those who have been longtime journalists who, who were working for the Star, it's it's a tougher road. Uh, I get calls uh, quite frequently from uh, established reporters saying, uh, "I want to take one of your part-time studies courses because I need this new skill set that I didn't get when I was going through journalism school." So they're the they're the ones who are going to have a tougher time. The younger ones, they may end up in some platform that they never even dreamed of uh, or some corporation that they never dreamed of but the jobs are out there it's just morphing i think also we're seeing um sort of the 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 flip of the or the swing of the pendulum into the opposite direction uh from the uh, from caused by trump you know the the, the trump effect is uh, was massive and there was definitely uh, a distrust and still is to some extent of the uh, so-called mainstream media uh, yeah. That I find is switching, and we're uh, we're back to having a waiting lists to get into our program. We've got students who are uh, gung ho about getting into this business, and, and a lot of them because they want to be able to tell straightforward, factual stories uh, that they can absolutely back up. There's not uh, an ounce of opinion in there, speculation. We we try to drill that out of them. I think that's where media possibly went wrong over the years. Is that more and more people straight over that line between am I a columnist or am I a straight-up reporter? And that's where I think the, the distrust became uh, started in some fashion with uh, the public over the media. Is that, well, I don't know, you've voiced an opinion on this subject before. Now you're giving a report on the same subject. What do I believe? 
So uh, that's, uh, I think we're getting back to, to good, solid, straightforward journalism. That's, that's where the industry has got to go, and that's where these, uh, these students are finding work. Back to basics. Yep, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Alan Waterman, he's a journalism instructor at BCIT. I think the uh, the struggle for newspapers, Alan, for your for your comment, is I remember talking to people in newspapers who said that you know that the the irony for a lot of newspapers that are struggling is that a lot of the stuff that newspapers produce are being read by more people than ever before because newspapers, of course, have all got websites, and there are tons of eyeballs looking at those websites. The struggle for newspapers is to is to get the advertising revenue because the advertising revenue that used to be for the print edition of the paper when print was king was huge. And totally, you know, adver- you, you, you know, your is- local car dealer would do a three page spread yeah. and and put massive dollars in into the pockets of the publisher. These days. Online is different. Online, you know, you could look at it as being the Costco model. Instead of uh, selling off one or two widgets at a time, we're going to sell them by the palletful at a much, much smaller margin. Uh, you're going to make money, but you've got to produce a lot more widgets. And, and that's really what you're looking at on online. You're going to get tens of thousands of eyeballs, uh, hopefully, uh, reading your stuff. They're only going to pay a, a penny apiece uh, to do it. Or, better yet, you figured out that uh, you can put up a pay firewall. Look at the New York Times. Look at the Guardian. Look at all these places that are ac- actually have improved uh, their status over the last couple of years because they recognized the only way they were going to get eyeballs, the only way they were going to get subscription base was to go online and make it a pay firewall. Have people actually yep. pay for good journalism. You've got to do the ju- good journalism to start with, but then people slowly realize they've got to be able to pay for it. And it's got to be multimedia as well. And I'll give a shout out to the Vancouver Sun and Province, the, the papers that I work for. And I think they're doing a great job kind of uh, bringing out a lot more content on the website, video, audio, podcasts, all kinds of stuff, because this is what people want. You know, people are demanding that kind of multimedia uh, experience. Totally. The, um, you look at the New York Times. They invested so heavily in video a couple of years ago, they hired, in one fell swoop, 150 video journalists. And they produce amazing stuff on the New York Times that you would never see in the printed page. It's, it's all value add. And uh, video is definitely uh, the king. It's got to be uh, uh, marketed to be picked up on mobile devices because now the latest stats I saw uh, were that uh, worldwide and in Canada, uh, mo- the most video viewed is on mobile devices, not on a TV, uh, but and not on a uh, on a desktop computer, but on mobile. And okay. you know, these the students now—that's where they're getting the news. That's where they're seeing it. It's it's video based to catch their eyeballs to hook them in, and then they're and then you got to right. you still have to deliver the solid goods. If you don't, if you don't have good solid journalism. They're not coming back no matter what. So okay. that's where it's gone. Alan, it's good to hear that BCIT is doing well there and uh, getting people into jobs. Thanks a lot for coming on. You're very welcome. Appreciate it. Alan Waterman, he's a journalism instructor at BCIT.